We have been duped by feminism, sexual liberation, and antidepressants. We have been told that we are powerful and free now as women, but we feel tired, wired, and bitter. We're mostly eating right, exercising, and meditating, wrangling to-do lists, and arranging playdates, and yet there's a haunting hollowness beneath the huge complaints. What if I told you that there is a huge storehouse, a reservoir of energy inside of you that has not been tapped, that you could feel light and pulsing, excited and alive in ways that a wellness lifestyle cannot deliver, that you could trust yourself, that the world could feel safe and that unexpected and expected delights could start to illuminate your path. No coach, therapist, doctor, or guru required. Just you learning to get real, present, and attentive with you. I feel like I'm here to matchmake your inner parts for the greatest love affair ever written. I want to help you learn first where you're buying eggs from the hardware store, which is the source of all pain. I want to help you master entering through the upset, which is the only spiritual practice you'll ever need and to get real comfortable putting on your villain crown, which is, in my opinion, the key to true power. And then you'll attune to your inner yes so you can live the life defined by the specific pleasure of who you are. I am so excited to announce my latest book called The Reclaimed Woman, which is available for pre-order now. So if you head to the link in show notes, you can learn more about bonuses, events, and companion offerings. And I cannot wait to see your gorgeous face on the path. I'm Dr. Kelly Brogan. You may know me as a New York Times bestselling author of a book with an exploding pill on the cover, renegade psychiatrist, pole dancer, or honorary member of the Disinformation Dozen. What can I say? I'm a born provocateur. I've spent most of my recent life exposing deceptions, connecting dots, and discovering the secret places my inner victim is still waiting to be liberated. And now I feel called to help you reclaim all of your parts, your health, your sexuality, your power, and your expression so that you can finally truly own yourself. I want to ignite in you that inner knowing and the pulsing vitality that lives beneath your disempowerment, disconnection, and resentment so that you can audaciously, courageously, and playfully alchemize your struggle into the specific pleasure of who you are. This is Reclamation Radio, a Soul Fire production. Hi, and welcome back to Reclamation Radio. I am Dr. Kelly Brogan, and I'm here today with Lori Handlers. I had the profound pleasure of spending almost a week with Lori a few months ago at a BDSM meets Tantra retreat that she co-led with Omer Pani. And to say that it was a game-changing experience would be (laughs) a euphemistic and also insufficient term. So I was very excited at the opportunity to sit down as we will today, you know, in conversation to go deeper into Lori's expertise, which is the tantric realm, the intimacy realm, 
And to my surprise, because I did not formerly associate shadow work and personal reclamation work and personal empowerment work that I you know, was able to witness Lori's expertise and mastery in, I didn't formerly associate that with Tantra. And I think I am like so many, Lori, who it must be so annoying to you who <laughs> think of Tantra as like, you know, some sort of just ecstatic sex practice that you learn, you know, you know, little eye gazing, little energetic music in the background, and then you just have multiple orgasms or something like that. And, you know, I, it was like two years ago that I remember thinking, you know, I had a very, very intense erotic connection with my former partner and wonderful experiences, deep experiences. And I felt called to something more like something even deeper. And I hired an erotic coach, Whitney, who I continued to work with for two years. And I, when I first talked to her, I said, you know, I don't know if I'm, if I'm just, I just, maybe I'd need to learn more like tantric erotic practices. And she's like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then we did six to nine months of like the deepest hardest, darkest shadow work I've ever done in my life. <laughs> so that was my, you know, not that she's a specialist necessarily in Tantra at all, but that was the, my first understanding of like, oh, to move in the direction of, you know, deeper erotic reclamation and intimacy, I have to go even deeper into these recesses. So I wanted to, by way of welcome, Lori, just start off with introducing like what is Tantra. What do you mean by it? You wrote a book I have here called Sex and Happiness, The Tantric Laws of Intimacy, which I absolutely love. And I don't know how many of us are really aware of the nuances of what it means to you to practice a tantric lifestyle. Mm, Good. Great questions. Well, let's just say, first of all, thanks for having me on. It's wonderful to be here with you and to let's reconnect, you know, Tantra. When I was studying Tantra, I was told that it meant expansion through awareness. And I couldn't relate to that. I I was like, expansion through awareness. Awareness of what? You know, like I didn't get it at first, like just kind of like you maybe, you know, just awareness of what? Expansion of what? So I renamed the definition of Tantra to be transformation through pleasure. And what I know is that when we focus on pleasure, anything that isn't pleasure comes up. So it seems like some people go towards pleasure and then they become like pleasure junkies. Some people resist pleasure because they feel guilty, ashamed of pursuing pleasure. And all of that needs to be brought to the surface and looked at. The other piece that I found in Tantra, like I just, I was searching for Tantra my whole life. I didn't know what it was called. I didn't know what it was, but I felt like there was something way more to sex than this, you know, (laughs) penis, vagina, friction. But then when I found it, it was like, oh my God. So what I discovered over the years is that sexuality is the portal to all the experiences that we've had in our lives. Pleasurable, unpleasurable, life-affirming, not affirming, painful, The place where it makes a mark in the body is in the second, what they call the second chakra, the place where pleasure and pain is stored. And this, like talking about it or talk therapy or understanding it only gives one dimension. There's a book out called The Body Keeps the Score. The body 
keeps the score of everything that happens. So for example, if you didn't get a gift at Christmas time that you wanted, you know, your parents got you something else, which I, I have a, like a famous scientist friend whose parents got him a toy telescope and he wanted a real telescope. And they gave him a toy when he was five and he was so disappointed. And where that makes a take is in your sex, in the place where there's pain and pleasure. And so later in therapy, he could be talking about, you know, my parents didn't take me seriously. They bought me this, the wrong thing. But where it's stored is in the pleasure center. And then when we go to have pleasure with someone, ever have the experience of crying and you don't know why the partner says, was it something I said? And you go, no doesn't have anything to do with you. That could be the toy. You know what I mean? That could be anything. That could be anything that happened because that's the place where memories and images and incidents is stored, not only in this memory. It's in cellular memory rather than in conscious memory. So I defined it as transformation through pleasure. And then anything unpleasurable comes up. Anything that we need to deal with, what you were talking about, shadow work, digging, cleaning the basement. That's what Tantra is about. And it starts gently through eye gazing. <laughs> you know, like it, it starts like, oh, let's have this ecstatic experience. But then there's so much more because people will start avoiding or start feeling like, oh, and then we have to learn boundaries and we have to learn all these things. So Tantra is pretty all inclusive. And I want to touch on that because I really like how you, first of all, you illustrate and you live and you embody boundaries in a way that I respect and admire. And I want to talk about that and what boundaries means because it's such a, you know, it's such a new age buzzword. And I'm sure yeah. you could call bullshit on a lot of the ways that people are engaging that phrase. The idea of shadow work, I want to read a quick quote from your book because I really like this. I think is again, I want to elucidate more what that has to do with pleasure, because I think the connection for most people is not clear, right? So what I hear you saying and what I've lived and experienced is that your capacity for pleasure requires the transformation or alchemy, let's say, of your shame, your pain, that they actually are, you know, intimately bound in this polarity. Okay. So you write, until you feel true compassion and love and possibly even gratitude for the worst, most damaging person in your life, you will find yourself facing versions of that same person in the same mirror again and again and again for as long as you live. Dump your current partner or friend and you will find that no matter how you try, your next partner or friend will do his or her own versions of exactly the things that are driving you to such despair now. And I have found that judgment is one of the easiest portals to accessing so many dimensions of my shadow. But I want to hear more about what that, because I totally agree with that sentiment. What does that have to do with pleasure and sex, right? Like how does Tantra as a practice weave together, you know, this experience of othering, of judging, of living in, you know, anger, resistance, you know, judgment, just this, this is sort of like tense posture that we can have towards so many others in our lives. What does that have to do with an experience of pleasure? And how do you apply pleasure to bring yourself to a place of neutrality around that kind of resistance? Mm, so good. Complicated, isn't it? <laughs> it is. It is a crucible. 
So first of all, anything that I'm judging, if I am judging it out there, it means that somehow it resonates with me in here. So if I see something in you that I don't like and I start to judge it, I'm like one finger is pointing out, but three fingers are pointing back at me. And those three fingers are pointing to some resonance that I have inside myself that knows something or it wouldn't be reacting. So I must be judging it in myself or not aware of it yet in myself to see it in you and be critical. That's like the first thing, like I have to have some resonance with it or else I would be neutral. I would just be neutral to it. Second of all, you know, the Cartman drama triangle. Yeah. So the rescuer, the perpetrator and the victim. And when you transform those, I don't know the name of the psychologist who came up with a new formula, but when you transform them, you have the challenger, the creator, and you have the coach. And the challenger is somebody who, like, I see something with them or I have a difficulty with them or what have you. I had a, in my life, I was in a violent relationship when I was 22. And it was a man who, he totally adored me. I knew that he loved me beyond words. And he, he had a violent thing. He, he couldn't not want to put his hands on me in a rough way. When I finally left that relationship, it took everything. It took all my guts to say, you're leaving. I need you to leave. You can come in here and kill me. I faced death and I would rather be dead than spend another minute with you. I mean, those were the most powerful words I ever said in my life, probably even still. And Today, I don't know where this person is, but today, if I ran into this person, I would thank him. Hmm. Because the badass that everybody knows of me, Laurie Handlers, today is was formed on that day. The day that I said those words to him, I went up in consciousness. I went up in communication. I went up in guts. I went up. I It summoned everything that I had in me to say, you have to leave. I will face you. You can come in here, collect your things and go. And today I would thank that person. So he was the challenger. Before that, I was the victim, but I became the creator in that moment. And so it's necessary that we transform those experiences into seeing them as a challenge and seeing what we had to do to rise to the occasion and bring ourselves forth in a powerful way. I mean, that's that's really what it is. When you speak about boundaries, I mean, to me, boundaries are the basis of intimacy. If you don't know the playing field that you're playing on with me, like you won't know how to be with me. You'll just be guessing at best and guessing doesn't cut it. It means there's so much room for error in guessing because I haven't told you my truth because I'm afraid you won't love me. So I don't tell you what I like or don't like. Boundaries are are me saying like, not this, this is good, not this, 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 yes, 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 not this. And then you get to play on a court with me like you understand the game and then we form intimacy. But if we don't have that, if I hold back on those because I'm afraid, because I'm afraid you won't like me, then we don't have a chance. I mean, that's how I see boundaries. And, And when you're talking about the falseness of the sort of the new age way of seeing boundaries. That's because when I tell you my boundaries, you are not expected to enforce them. 
I get to enforce my boundaries day after day after day after day. That's what my life is about. And I tell you, that's my boundary. I have no recourse. You don't get to reinforce my boundaries. I do. They're mine. Yeah. You have different ones. And I, I respect yours or I don't respect them. If I trespass your boundary, it's up to you to tell me. You can, if you roll your eyes and then make me wrong, then we got a different kind of a situation. Right, right, right. That boundaries are not about controlling somebody else's behavior. <laughs> It's yeah, that that kind of self-assertion is it's part of the, you know, the the immature end of the spectrum of personal empowerment is to finally right discover this is actually what I like and don't like. And you, and you find just the beginnings of your voice. But sometimes you imagine in the beginning that your role is to tell somebody how they are to behave towards you and insist and command and, and demand, you know, but that's so much of what I took away from the experience that I had with you and Ohm was about boundaries. You know, I, I certainly didn't go there with that expectation. And I remember, you knew the first couple of days I was experiencing so much discomfort and anxiety. And the moment I recognized that I have choices <laughs> you know, I have choices here and I can express, you know, what works for me and what doesn't, which is actually what the shared culture that you and Om represent is founded on, I would say, consent, you know, and the the practice of of choice and boundaries. Once I I owned that, everything was totally fine. Everything was great actually. And so the kind of experience of, of anxiety and fear and all of these compensatory behaviors, including judgment, right? So when we are not standing in our boundaries, as you're saying, we need to make the other person bad and wrong in order to justify what we're experiencing. And when you describe that story with your ex-partner, I thought of something I say all the time. And I know you agree with this because you write about it, that when you exercise your power of choice without needing to make somebody else bad and wrong, you come into that empowered place. You step out of that victim triangle. So like, what do you think is our problem with boundaries? Like, why was it so difficult in those early days for me to just own what it is that would work for me? I was in an environment that was totally supportive of that. Why do we have so much trouble, you know, speaking our truth, speaking our mind, getting in touch with what it is that we is our yes and our no to begin with? Yeah, I just feel like people didn't have permission. You know, like it's just, it's a it's a socialization. I think it's a cultural socialization problem. It could be gender-based. You know, it even could be decade-based. You know, who has more permission to speak their truth? Like I, I had permission in my life to speak my anger in my family growing up, but I didn't have permission to go against education or whatever. I mean, there were certain values that I wasn't allowed to go against. And literally, I mean, the fact that I travel the world teaching about sex, that all happened after my mother was dead. That didn't happen while my mother was alive. My father, on the other hand, became my student. My father actually took a Tantra class from me after my mother died so he could figure out how to relate to women. But permission to speak, permission to speak about whatever. I think it's cultural. And I, you know, I don't think I went into this tirade during that course, but, you know, I feel that for many people being liked and loved is so 
tantamount to their truth that the first thing to do is like be sort of victimized and not like something and object to it and then find out, oh, I could speak about it and I'm still loved and respected. Matter of fact, I'm respected more. I think that's a second, I mean, depends on your family of origin, but like for me, that was, that's secondary. I wanted, I wanted to be popular, you know, like I wanted to be liked by everyone. And it took me a while to realize that I'm also the one that people come to when they want something straight, no chaser, just say the truth. Like if you were wearing a dress that I didn't think looked good on you, I actually would tell you. And most people would not. (laughs) They would think it maybe, but they wouldn't say. But my friends know that they can count on me for saying things. But that took a while to develop. The fear of rejection is tremendous. So I don't know. But that's the paradox, right? Like I I often think that if we could live in a world where everybody knew what they wanted, you know, knew what they needed and wanted and was aware of what didn't work for them and was willing to express that, just imagine how safe that world would feel, right? Like all of the mind reading and the manipulation and the strategy that attends not owning our you know, basic preferences and being willing to fearlessly express them. I mean, it creates this web of deception, you know, that is, is really a source of like great suffering. And I know that the sort of tacit consent, the micro consent that goes with, you know, this experience of it's really going with the flow, right? Like when you're sort of like, Oh, I'm just going to roll with it and, and stay quiet. It's, fine, but it's inside, you're feeling all of this judgment about what's not working for you in a situation, but those little micro consent experiences are really a violation, not only of you, but also of the other person and the other people that you're interacting with. So the kind of respect you describe emerging from this commitment, you know, that one can make to speaking their own truth and boundaries, it's totally game-changing. The word Truth is thrown around a lot these days, and I get so many questions about the best path to coming into personal alignment around truth. I wanted to share something that has really supported me in the process that I come back to time and again to tune my system and tap into my inner wisdom and knowing. The Divine Truth Elixir from Lotus Way helps you to illuminate your greatest purpose through the art of self healing. You use it to unveil your sacred offering and clarify your expression attract community, and magnify your powerful presence. This flower essence dissolves difficulty with telling the truth, lack of purpose, withdrawal patterns, inauthenticity, veiled intentions, secrecy, and wanting to run or abandon ship when things get hard. It's such a beautiful practice to sit with this elixir and really allow yourself to feel the fact that you came here to be real, the real you. So head to lotusway.com and use the code Kelly15 for 15% off. The link is in the show notes for you. You talk about, I like this, even from, you know, a parenting perspective, I have worked with this concept of like positive boundaries, right? And you give an example I really liked in the book where you talk about, you know, if you were going to say, you know, don't interrupt me, basically, like stop interrupting me. You could say, I want to finish what I'm saying. Right. Because for me and for so many appeasers, right, who can only set a boundary when they're angry, it's exquisitely uncomfortable to generate social discord 
in service of a boundary. So for me, I would never say to somebody who I'm not affronted by, don't interrupt me. You know, I would certainly be far more willing to lean into, you know, I really love to finish what I'm saying, right? Because you're, you're satisfying and fulfilling your appeasement part. And also, you know, the part that says like, come on, uh, say something, this doesn't work. And so there's a consensus that's available. And so I wonder if you think that positive boundaries is maybe a stepping stone for a lot of us to get to the place where you can just let it rip no matter what the environment is. Boundaries are boundaries. I mean, whatever they are, I feel like that it's really important. I actually have a colleague who interrupts me a lot, finishes my sentences. And recently I had to say, I mean, in front of 80 people, I had to say, stop, stop talking, stop talking when I'm talking. And like, because before this person had never heard it and didn't kept not hearing it. So it happened a number of times at a big meeting we were at for a week. And finally, I just went, stop it, stop. And then she didn't do it again, you know, but I felt like that was costly. Like Mm -hmm. I didn't actually want to do it like that. I, but I've spoken to her before, like, don't finish my sentences. Don't correct me or don't think I can't remember whatever the thing is I'm talking about. Stop it. And so this time I just did it in front of people and they all had, then I said to everybody, let's all take a breath. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> Cause I had to put a say, it was just so annoying, you know? Yeah. I feel like the beginning of boundaries, it one experiences anger and then it doesn't have to be like that. It can be like long before anger. I think anger happens when we haven't, set our boundaries sometimes we don't know we have a boundary until someone crosses it and so I feel like the anger comes when we all of a sudden we found out a new boundary or it's been crossed so many times and we didn't even know it was a boundary and now all of a sudden oh I'm so mad you know but because we have emotional release techniques also we can neutralize the anger before we actually set up and speak about it I wouldn't put my anger on you. Like I, in the old days, I used to put anger on people. I write a lot about that in the book. I mean, yeah, I had so much anger. It just was my first response to everything. And then when I realized that I didn't have that, I could handle that. I don't have to put anger on you or anybody else. Just doesn't have to happen. I mean, anger is for when a boundary is trespassed. To identify that for yourself, for yeah. your own awareness. Exactly. Yeah. But I don't have to put that out there on you. I can just say, you know, yesterday this happened and I have a boundary about that. And I'm going to say something from now on. I don't want to be angry at you. So, so how, how much of this kind of dumpster diving, that's the phrase that just came to me, <laughs> around, you know, one's own personal shit and, you know, the ways that we've been programmed and conditioned, do you think is important to do yourself through, you know, sort of individual practices and, you know, how much can be done in partnership? Like how much can be done through sexuality, through this kind of intimacy intended connection? Because I know that you also are a believer that sex is alchemical and that you can work through, you know, and with a partner to transmute a lot of these old emotional energies that are stored in the body. Or do you think like, do a lot of your own work first before you ever expect to be an intimate dynamic with another person. Yes to that. I think 
I don't, I mean, I'm engaged now to be married for the first time in my life. I, like I never, I would always like look at my partners and go, I can't, what would I be doing another 30 years with this person? Like I, I just, I never met anyone who met me and I'm in a relationship now where I I'm with someone who meets me, who really meets me fully. And I don't feel like I could have ever been here if I didn't do my individual work. So one, I think people should take responsibility and do their individual work. There are many ways to do that. There are therapeutic ways to do that. There are workshop ways to do that. There are seminar ways to do that. There's lots of ways to do that. And I, like I did a lot. And if you're in a relationship and you're saying, okay, well, I don't want to leave this relationship, but I realize it brings up a lot of stuff for me, a lot of things from the basement then do the work individually and come back together. But partners can do it together also. I mean, my partner and I teach a course called Extraordinary Lovers. And in that course, we teach people a ritual way to say the hardest things. So most times people would say something to someone and they'd get in an argument because that's what people do. They get defensive. Oh, I'm not really like that. Whatever it is you're saying, I'm not listening to it. But we teach people how to say it and hear it, how to say it so that it gets received and then how to go to work on that. But I don't think that I personally don't think there's a place to start. Right. I think that's dangerous to the relationship. People ask me, I mean, people have asked me for years, should I come to this course with my partner? Should I come to this course with my partner? And I usually say, the truth is, you know, being in partnership will get in the way of you doing your work. You'll be looking at your partner, seeing if your partner finds somebody else attractive. You'll be looking at your partner, thinking that the work and the yelling that they're doing is about you, when in fact, it's probably happened long before you came on the scene. So I, use, I often encourage people not to come to certain classes with their partners and to come to classes for partners with their partner, that's different. There's not that much, you know, there's not that much around for partners. There's not, I think couples are an endangered species because mostly everybody's experimenting with the limits of relating these days. And so there's not a lot of support for being in a couple. Yeah, that's true. I remember I was laughing because I remember coming to the retreat and feeling like, oh God, if I were here with a partner, this would be so much easier. And then by the end of it, I was like, I am so glad I was not here with a partner because <laughs> I just watched how challenging it was, you know, for those couples. And I know a lot of what, you know, Om and I have a podcast. It's actually my, my most listened to of all my podcasts so far on the subject of man, woman relating. And I know that you, the three of us are in the same, you know, consensus around the crisis of man, woman relating and the roles specifically that, you know, a woman can occupy in her relationship and a man can occupy in his relationship. And what is this idea of polarity and complementarity versus like just a transactional kind of like egalitarian, you know, modern day result of feminism kind of relationship? Doesn't work. Yes. So tell us a little bit about your perspective on this endangered species of, you know, the healthy erotic couple who is experiencing intimacy. You know, what do you see as some of the biggest challenges that people are facing and what do you see as the solution? Yeah, it's a good one. Om and I talk about it a lot. Also, he's here right now, by the way, he's in my house. So (laughs) 
So the three of us, oh, Michael and myself, speak a lot about this. The challenges, feminism, big challenge. I was a card-carrying feminist. I mean, I told, you know, I marched in the streets for to be able to walk safely in the streets. I wanted to be, have equal pay. And I said to men who tried to light my cigarette when I smoked at the bar, what, you think these don't work? I can light my own cigarette. I can open my own car door. I did say all those things and I have apologized a hundred times since then because for men, life is more simple. They just need to know what to do to get it right. That's all they really want to do. They just want to like do the job to get it right with us. But I didn't know that. I thought they were more like women are so much more complex. They just and feelings run through everything. And men were taught not to feel. So my sense these days is that feminism screwed up a lot of men. Like men don't know what to do. They don't know which role to pay. They don't know whether to pay for lunch, not pay for lunch, open the car door, don't open the car door. I don't smoke anymore, so no one's trying to light a cigarette, but they just are lost. They don't know what to do. And you experienced that in the class that you were in. Yeah. Oh, like yeah. They, they were lost and fidgety, lost and fidgety. Like it was like, and when we tried to do containment, they couldn't contain, they couldn't contain themselves, let alone you. So there's a big problem there. Ohm speaks a lot about it. Couples come and they say, the woman says, I want you to handle me. I want to surrender. I want to see, I want rapture. And the man's like, I wasn't brought up like that. I can't handle you. I don't even know what that is. And so it's really difficult. And polarity. Well, I'll just talk about my coupling with my partner. We, first of all, we don't sleep in the same room because we feel that pheromones get mixed in the sheets. And if your pheromones get neutralized, then you don't have polar attraction. So we pay visits to each other, but we have two master suites and we sleep in them. Sleep is very important, very underrated. Sleep is so important. I have a sleep expert who says that some couples break up because the sleeping habits are different. And one may be really cranky just because they don't get enough sleep. So this is a Navy SEAL, ex-Navy SEAL who went to medical school after sealed them and he studies seals and their sleep patterns and there's a crankiness and a whatever that happens if someone doesn't get proper sleep so we have separate bedrooms we also don't eat the same foods we might eat at the same time but we eat different spices and different things because we believe it's chemistry i want to interrupt you to tell you how how synchronous this is because i'm moving and I just bought, I decided I wanted a new bed and new mattress. And I just bought a queen size. I'm single now. And I just bought a queen size bed and mattress, which I've never owned in my life. Like who buys a queen, right? And I said, because that is the bed that is meant for me, right? Like that's the bed that's meant for me. And because I've come to the same conclusion that I, I actually don't want to like go, you know, nina, nana, like sleeping, cuddling, you know, like a little baby with my partner, that that is something that I think informally there was such, you know, I'm an anxiously attached person. So like there was such this like hunger for connection, like any kind all the time, please, that I would sacrifice like many aspects of the, the nature and power of the connection to get those little like crumbs, but then it's also so culturally reflexive, right? Like nobody is thinking about like, would it be 
you know, more conducive to polarity? Would it be more conducive to my sleep hygiene, you know, to my privacy, to my separateness and individuality that is the foundation of beautiful complementarity to sleep separately, you know? So I think this is, many of us are coming on to this now. Really so important. And then there's the piece about, well, in the absence of masculine, the feminine will do both. In the absence of masculine, in this case, I'm going to say dark masculine. So the dark masculine is the warrior, the one that will protect, the one that will cut the head off. There, I mean, the light masculine is fine. I'm not making it wrong at all. Light masculine is really important. That's the compassion, acceptance, no judgment. But the dark masculine is what's lacking in men these days. And in order for me to surrender, to like actually surrender into rapture, to surrender into my pleasure at the hands of or in the presence of the masculine, I had to learn how to do that. I had to feel safe because I could do both. I'm like, I'm so, you know, day after day when I'm teaching or whatever, I'm in my masculine. I'm not, I'm not thinking about surrender in that regard. And I learned that my inner little girl could be safe around men and who are my colleagues, including Om, who are my colleagues who I I noticed were always watching out for me. Like they carry my bags or I had a sciatic issue once and we were going into Brazil and into the jungles and they got a, a mule just to carry my bags and they, and they were watching for me. And I started to see that there was a part of me, a hypervigilant part of me that could relax. And a woman cannot be turned on when she's hypervigilant. If a woman is like being in a New York street, she can't relax into pleasure she can't relax into orgasm she's worried about her safety and when when there's a man around who understands holding space safely protecting without judgment and he can handle that he can do that then someone like me can relax into pleasure and give up the dual role and i think that's so lacking today there's just so few people who even understand that they're just you know, so everyone wants to be ravished, but no one is ready to surrender to ravishment if they don't feel safe. And it's a practice. It's not something that just, oh, now I'm going to surrender. No, I had to learn to surrender because people like Omer in my life, because my partner Michael is in my life, because the people that I work with, those men, not all of them, but some of them are capable of holding me. I'm powerful and they're not afraid to take that on. And so I learned, oh, I can relax here. Hmm. We did ayahuasca together in that Brazil jungle. And I remember looking around, I was dancing for eight hours and I looked around and every one of the men that I really love and count on had one eye on me the whole time to make sure I wasn't going to fall, to make sure I wasn't going to trip and fall into the fire pit, to make sure I was on my feet. And then at some point at the end of the journey, one of them came up to me and said, okay, you look like you're really tired now. You need to lay down on a mattress. And he took me by the hand and walked me over to a spot to my own pallet. And I was like, oh, I'm safe. So safe. This was so good. That takes a lot. 
also men need to develop that and women need to develop that too. They need to want, it's like a desire. I wanted to surrender, but I didn't have a space to. Yeah. I, I mean, I experienced this personally, you know, at, at the retreat and also have observed that, you know, when we think of vigilance, we think of, like you said, like a New York alley, right? We think of fear, but that it also masquerades as performativity, right? So when you're with your lover or, you know, even a practice partner and you are so focused on their perception of you and your behavior that you're not actually in your own experience enough to assess whether something feels a certain way or not. That also comes from vigilance as does, I remember Om calling me out on this in one of the exercises, like the nurturer, he called it like fake giving, right? So when you're, as a woman, you're in that sort of like nurturing energy, it's potentially one that comes from fear, right? It's the shadow mommy energy of like, you know, taking care of the man because you don't trust that he can take care of himself, let alone you. And, and so that's a yeah, that's a buzzkill. That right there, that kills all eroticism. The mommy that comes out from nowhere and is taken care of. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> these are tough ones. I mean, these are tough challenges for people to face, and some people don't even want to like look at it. They would make this conversation wrong. Clearly, you are controversial on the internet. I'm controversial. And some people don't want to look at this at all. They think that this conversation is even wrong that because it's binary. And I think people in non-binary relationships still have this. They have it in one way. They don't have, we don't have to call it masculine and feminine, but if someone's going to be hypervigilant all the time, then that person is not going to surrender to whatever the pleasure is that the other one wants to give them. I don't think it has to be cut sliced and diced in masculine and feminine. It yeah. I mean, I speak, yeah. yeah, from my, through my lens and from my experience. And also I'm like deeply invested in the polarity of man, woman relating, because it's not just about sexual polarity. It's like how I interact with my neighbor, with my brother, with my dad, you know, with a lover, it's all going to stem, you know, my bias is from a woman's fear that she'll be killed, you know, especially for the expression of her, her vital force energy. Right. I'm going to pause here for a quick second. If you are into the topic of man-woman relating, polarity, and what the reclamation of Eros has to do with holistic health, then I invite you to check out and download my free ebook on the subject at the link below and to also check out a blog I wrote that goes deeper into the subject of BDSM, some of the science supporting it, and why these reframes and tools may be exactly what the world needs to move out of confusion resentment and victimhood and into personal empowerment and pleasure. Hope that helps. I do think that that is our responsibility to transmute. However, I'm biased and I wonder what you think about this, you know, along the lines of an order of operations. Like I do feel that when men and I, I feel for them, right? Because, you know, I watch a lot of like Viking shows and I love the show Outlander. And I watch all these like shows where there is a depiction of men from an early age, you know, learning how to build and to fight and, you know, to kill and to fend. And, you know, these days we have men, we put them in a kindergarten classroom with a woman at the front of the, you know, the class telling them what to do all day long. And that is a boy's upbringing. <laughs> and then the women of the world are like, where the hell are all the men? You know, so, so we have a mess here. We have a mess. Yes. However, 
if men learn how to contain themselves and others, as you're describing, as Om speaks to, I actually think it's very natural for most women who've done a modicum of self-work to surrender to that, right? I don't think we have to actually work very hard as women to open when we are in the presence of that field. I don't know. That's my my bias is that there is sort of like an order of operations that can really work. You just actually said the secret, which is when we're in the presence of presence, I mean, that's the key presence and people presence can be taught, but it isn't usually. And with everybody on their device, I was going to pick my device up. Everybody's got this going on all the time. And this takes us away from presence and the scrolling and the craziness that's all against presence presence is, and this is where Tantra comes in presence is I'm with you. My eyes are with you. My being is breathing next to you with you together with you. And I am so present that I can't miss a thing. And if all of a sudden something moves in you or your eyes blink, I see it. I'm with you. That's the gift. Like, I love to say that presence is like presence and it's a present. It's a gift. It's the best gift you can give someone, be present to them. And that way we can surrender. It doesn't take much if somebody's present. We might test them a bit, but. And that's the mirror also, right? Is that when I am present enough to myself as a woman, monitoring, attending, invested, attuned, then I can, you know, receive that kind of a presence. Otherwise I might remain in, you know, some degree of outer focus when my role, especially if we're talking about Dom sub, you know, when my role as a sub might be to simply go inward and be within myself, I'm violating the agreement to focus on, you know, the Dom's experience. And I do know that this experience that we have as women of being in vigilance, you know, it comes for a good reason, right? As you described, there is a reality that as we walk the earth, we are vulnerable to physical threat. That mm-hmm. is simply a reality. It's a biological reality. And I think that transmuting this, the way that we interact with fear through the archetype of the father right? Is one of the most, just some of the deepest work, let's say that a woman might do in her lifetime. And I wanted to, uh, I don't know why I saved this for last, but I wanted to talk about, you know, this, this experience that you shared through your scene play in BDSM, as you know, you started to work with Ohm and integrate BDSM into your tantric and intimacy work. You shared a story about your personal experience of transmuting dynamics that you had with your father that seemed to be interfering with your relationships. And, you know, this is part of the truth telling you referenced earlier. I mean, when you told this story to a group of us, there was this permission field that grew for me. It was in real time in that moment where I felt like, wow, I am listening to this woman speak so frankly and candidly about something that is so taboo (laughs) and she's totally self-possessed her. I could feel your system totally calm. And 
it allowed me to embrace like an even deeper commitment to what it is to transmute this fear of men. Because that's what I'll reduce it to. That may not be how you look at it, but that's how, you know, I experienced it on some level that as daughters, we have a fundamental fear and confusion that gets bound up in erotic energy with our dads, regardless of what happened, whether we were beaten, molested, neglected, adored, really it's, it's there. And to not have a deep understanding of your dynamic as a woman with your father will necessarily impair and impede your capacity for intimacy with men in the future. And so I would love for you to share that, you know, on this platform, because you're willing to, I got your consent up front. And because I just think you, you grow the field of permission for us to see like, not only that this is real, you know, that we're walking around with these issues and we all are, but also what can be accessed through, you know, sexuality that in no number of years of therapy would become available. Right. And so this embodied alchemy you know, I've become a zealot about it because I know it's a missing piece. Obviously as a psychiatrist, you know, I know there's only so much you can talk about. Sometimes it needs to be fucked out of the system. <laughs> so Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That's what I did. Yeah. I, I mean, I've had a love hate relationship with my father. I mean, my whole life, my father's not alive anymore, but when he was alive, he mind fucked me like all the time. Like he would say, he would say, we're going to do this. And then he would change the rules, but not tell anyone. And so I would prepare for the this, and then the this was changed. And it happened all the time. And I know that he adored me, and I know that I adored him, but also, it, whatever, it was weird. The craziest part about it was that he was my dentist. This is the part where, it, so he was my dentist. And I would go to his office to have my teeth cleaned or to get a filling or whatever. I would be on nitrous oxide, which is a very sexy like nitrous oxide takes away the, they use it in a dentist office because it takes away the gag reflex. That's what was explained to me, but it has like tremendous like effect on the body. It's kind of a stimulant for arousal. And so under the influence of nitrous oxide, my father would say, open wider, Lar. And every time I was at his office, I would think to myself, I'm getting these weird feelings about my father. These are so weird. Like, I'll just keep it to myself, you know, and I never, I never said anything to him about it, but I did. At some point, my father started to get high. He started to smoke marijuana and he wanted to do acid at some point. And he said to me, I want to smoke marijuana with you. And I want to trip on LSD. And I said, I'm not. And he said, why? And I said, because it's too intimate. I don't want to be with you under the circumstances of those drugs. Of course, he didn't know what my feelings were about nitrous oxide. I never said that to him, but I said, no, I wouldn't do any psychedelics with him. And he was really curious. He read Aldous Huxley and he wanted to do everything. Anyway, after he died, I had a lover that was very cooperative and also who knew my father. And I said to him, I need you to play a role with me. I need you to play my father. And I need you to say these things to me and we need to have sex. Like we have to fuck our brains out while you're saying these things to me. And he said, are you sure? And I said, we absolutely have to do it. I have to get it out of my system. I have to play it out. And he said, okay. And so I told him exactly. I told him to say open wider law. I told him to say, you know, okay, everything looks good in your mouth. You know, whatever my father used to say to me when I was on nitrous oxide, And we had sex. We had like hot, amazing sex. And 
he was saying these things to me in my ear. And I said, say that you want me more than you want mommy, all the Oedipal stuff, everything that that you could think about in Oedipal or Electra complex. I said, say these things to me. Now, I learned about this in Tantra. My Tantra teacher used to ask us to do emotional release with saying things like, I'm your special little girl, daddy. I'm your special little girl. Look at me. Look at me. And most of the people in the class wouldn't do it. But I did it rigorously because I knew it was it was in there. I knew it was. So then to do emotional release with all that and then later on to have a lover who would play that out with me, I just said, I I need to do this. I knew he would do it. So it was tremendous. It was so freeing. Like I got over it. And then at the end, I remember him saying to me, I hope my daughter doesn't feel like this about me. And I said, she probably does. <laughs> you know, like I just... <laughs> <laughs> and you, you know, you, you spoke about, you and Om spoke about something I had never really, again, as a psychiatrist, and I was taught in a very Freudian institution, it never really came up, which is the inherently eroticized nature of the father-daughter dynamic and how what adult women are looking for in their man is the same thing that that little girl was looking for in her daddy, right? But that the mother-son dynamic is quite different for reasons that are confusing, where like what a little boy is looking for in his mommy, he's distinctly turned off by in his you know adult female partner. Yes, I don't understand that either. I have no idea why that is. I really don't know. To me, I always looked at if a man has a good relationship with his mother, they make better partners than if they don't have a good relationship with their mother or if they're bossed around, like the mother tells them everything to do. I once broke up with somebody because his mother was telling him he had to do this and this and this for me. And I was like, oh my God, I can't, like your mother's going to be ruling our life. I can't have that. But if somebody has a decent, you know, good connected relationship with their mother, I think that's healthy. But women and their fathers, it's so complex, you know, how he was and what number you are in the family and what that's like so much. So I was number one in my family and my father, you know, he was great in some ways and terrible in some other ways. And I just had to get that out of my system. Like I always look for people not like him. And it's interesting because my partner now many times reminds me of him. Yeah, of course. Many, many times reminds me of him. You've integrated that. Yeah, I just smile to myself and I go, if you only knew. (laughs) I don't talk about it much. I don't bring it up much. But inside me, I have this like warm feeling of like, oh, like my father was super intellectual and I always avoided that. I always tried to find like mechanics or <laughs> firemen, <laughs> you know, somebody, people who weren't like so heady. And it turns out my partner is just so intellectual, can argue anything, can argue any point, has certain point, And sometimes it just cracks me up. I go, wow, I guess I love the guy after all. And that's what so many, right, would describe as the the nature of the erotic impulse is to complete that arc, right? To actually source from the original, you know, reservoir, the 
love and connection that wasn't available in your childhood. Exactly. You know, that's what imago therapy is based on, right? This idea of like, you know, it is possible to find the love in that place, but first you got to recognize that it's not available in all the other places, right? Exactly. That you source it out. So I think this is, it's just so profound to, to bring this out of the closet, so to speak, you know, because I think otherwise there's a real missing piece in the dynamics that we play out that are often, you know, the source of a lot of struggle and suffering, the competition that men and women have, the experience that women have of resentment and bitterness and disappointment with men. And of course, you know, in the activism world, I encounter a lot of women who have myself chief among them. <laughs> who are fundamentally afraid, you know, who are afraid of men. And this is how yeah. we compensate for that. You know, we, we make a safer world by fighting, you know, the bad daddy out there kind of a thing. And it's all subconscious stuff, you know? So until you at least have, again, this, this permission field put in front of you to say, okay, this may be relevant to you. You know, I don't know. What do you think? You want to check it out. And the idea that it could be transmuted in, you know, safe partnered practice is really, again, you know, what some of these you know, whether it's Tantra or BDSM, some, some of these cultures are really bringing to the table is just expanding the toolbox so that it's not just, you know, chitty chatting on the couch forever about your, you know, your woeful childhood. So I am so grateful, you know, for the work that you're doing. And we're just talking about, you know, that you're coming from an international trip and I know you're, you're bringing these practices to so many people who would not otherwise feel comfortable you know, exploring them, let alone reap the benefits. So I am so grateful for all that you do. And I know that you have some, some new stuff coming up. You said a book also, right? Yeah, I have a new book coming out. It'll probably be around the holiday time in 2023, like just before around Thanksgiving time, I think. And it's also called Sex and Happiness, but it's Sex and Happiness Gets Better at Any Age. So it's really geared towards people who think that when they turn 50, they're going to be dried up. Nothing's going to happen anymore. They feel like they're losing their beauty or they're losing their erection, whatever it is. And I give seven new laws, although one law is the same, boundaries. I still keep boundaries in there. We started the show with boundaries, boundaries. It's different for older people. Boundaries are about people trying to take advantage of them. It's not the same as sexual boundaries. It's more like boundaries of saying no, like I'm hanging the phone up or no, you can, I'm not opening the door or whatever. Not like less people pleasing in a different way. But there's seven laws about things to stay youthful, to stay young, to keep growing, to keep challenging oneself, both sexually and otherwise because it doesn't have to be that way. Someone doesn't have to say, oh, my sexual identity is now going away because I'm over 50. So that's who the book is geared to. It's geared to people getting older and continuing to have their mojo. Absolutely. And, you know, requires a reframing of Eros in general, right? That it's not simply about this objectified actually quasi pornographic depiction of, of sex, that it is your vital force. It is your life force. And why shouldn't it be available even more so, you know, with the really? wisdom that is accrued over these years. So awesome. I'm very excited for that, Lori. And I love being in conversation with you. I love everything you're doing. And I'm so grateful to have cross paths and for this conversation. Thank you. 
Can I say one thing? Of course. I want to just say that if people want to go to my website, lauriehandlers.com, I have a free gift for them, which is a book on, it's a workbook on boundaries. Amazing. That's perfect. We'll have the link in the show notes for sure. That's excellent. That's great. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Laurie.